0: Sometimes humans have the ability to predict the future. Well, not really. But sometimes coincidence and human perception collide in just the right way to make it appear that we have superhuman predictive abilities. For example, I can remember multiple times in my childhood where I would be humming a song or singing it out loud or I'd be singing it in my head and then I would get in the vehicle and my parents would turn on the vehicle and lo and behold, that very song is playing on the radio right at that moment. There was a couple times where it was like right to the part of the song that i had been singing and uh i always thought that maybe i was a psychic or or a prophet or maybe it's just that the most popular country songs are played in my house 8 dozen times a day over and over and so you can expect when you turn on the vehicle that it'll be playing cuz it's always playing so maybe it's that but i don't think so i think it's i think i just have powers i think i'm just a very powerful person i no i don't think that I found a story online that I found amusing. This is uh, from Reddit. Uh, some Somebody named Torx and Antlers submitted this story. They said, um, I told my cousin it was my turn to play video games. If he didn't, uh, give me my turn. By the count of three, I was going to turn it all off. Well, I counted, and as soon as I hit three, the power went out for the entire valley. It was out for more than a day, and he spent the next year in fear of my powers. <laughs> powers, indeed. Of course... It's just a story of perfect timing, right? We can recognize this as coincidence. The storyteller clearly didn't control their hometown's power supply with the all-consuming rage of a teenager being denied their turn at a video game. Uh, We hope. (laughs) I don't think so, anyway. None of us can see the future. None of us are prophets or psychics. Uh, None of us have powers similar to our creator God, whose very words have the authority to shape history and creation. He speaks and it happens. We don't have that ability. Sometimes, however, that same creator God uses our words to emphasize his plans and his purposes. And on occasion, he'll even use the words of his enemies and antagonists to serve his purpose. And today's passage is just such an example. Today's passage begins with the aftermath of two recent sermon passages. First, in chapter 4, the apostles were arrested and were commanded to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. Those Uh, apostles blatantly disobeyed those commands and then as we examined last week there is the ongoing success of the church's mission of salvation that the disciples were told commanded not to speak in jesus name they disobeyed there was rebellion within the church the ananias and Sapphira, and out of all of that continued growth happened victory continues to happen well these three elements coalesce today into uh, very familiar uh, outcomes we saw it in chapter 4 and it's happening again in chapter 5. Things like imprisonment, passionate preaching, deliverance, and renewed commitment to the Kerygma message and to kingdom living. It happened in chapter 4. It's happening again in chapter 5. But there are some very interesting differences between the events of chapter 4 and the events of our passage today from chapter 5. So here's my bold prediction. Here's I'm using my words to predict the future, okay? Bold prediction time. As we read the story of the Apostle's second imprisonment, we will gain a better understanding of who's really in charge here. Okay, that's my prediction. We'll see if it see if it comes to fruition. So as you see here, we're going to read all of Acts 5, 17 to 40. We're just going to read it chunk by chunk at a time. So we're going to start by verses 17 to 21. The high priest and his officials, who were Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. And again, this comes out of the story of um, people coming to the apostles to be healed. Even they would come to bask in Peter's shadow and they would be healed or Uh, Cleared of demon possession. And so the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But an angel of the Lord came at night, opened the gates of the jail, and brought them out. Then he told them, Go to the temple and give the people this message of life. So at daybreak, the apostles entered the temple as they were told and immediately began teaching. So we'll pause there. Neither the response of the apostles to the Sanhedrin's earlier command to cease and desist all preaching in the name of Jesus, Um, their response was that they refused to obey that command, nor the response of the Sanhedrin to the apostles' refusal to obey, their response was anger and jealousy. Neither of those responses is very surprising to us. right? You would expect that the, the disciples, the apostles, would disobey that command, especially so early in the history of the early church. And you would expect the Sanhedrin to be frustrated by their lack of obedience, And so it's not very surprising. The apostles had made it clear at the conclusion of their trial before the Jewish powers, in chapter 4, verses 19 to 20, that they would not, and indeed could not, fall in line with the council's misguided orders. Peter said in those verses, Do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling about everything we have seen and heard. So again, it's not surprising that they didn't stop telling what they have seen and heard. And so the Sanhedrin can't really be shocked at their rebellion, but that doesn't mean they can't be supremely ticked off by their brashness. The spirit-led ministry of the apostles, around whom the streets of Jerusalem had become something of an emergency room filled with the diseased and the destitute and the demon-possessed, their ministry was powerful evidence that God was working through this ragtag collection of Jesus proclaimers. That troublemaking Peter and his ignorant comrades weren't just teaching Jesus as the risen son of god which was blasphemy enough they were seemingly able to duplicate his powers they were doing all the things that Jesus had been doing so they're proclaiming his name and now they're actually looking a lot like him how embarrassing that these uneducated commoners were winning the hearts of the people how frustrating that the name of a crucified blasphemer simply could not be properly crushed no matter what they did they could not stomp stamp it out in fact His name seemed to be spreading and growing and multiplying throughout the holy city. And it needed to stop. They needed to stop. And the fact that they did not heed the, the Sanhedrin's first warnings and were making the Sanhedrin look more and more like fools meant that these apostles needed more than just a stern warning to learn their lesson. And doesn't this attitude show the nature of the hearts of these enemies of the gospel? Their commitment isn't to divine authority, but to their own authority. They aren't drawn in worship towards spiritual power. They are drawn in ignorance towards those things that jeopardize their own social power. They were embarrassed and frustrated and jealous when they should have been humbled and awestruck and awake with fresh praise for the God that they claimed to serve. Instead, they imprisoned the apostles for what? For doing good. In Jesus' name, it would be wise for each of us to continually assess our own motivations, our own pursuits, and our own biases to assure that we remain seeking the kingdom and not our kingdoms. It will do no good for us to just read the Sadduceic approach to Jesus and say, those guys are so far off. I think we need to read the Sadducees and see a little bit of ourselves in there. Because I do as much or more pursuit of the Chris Lance kingdom than the kingdom of Jesus. So it's a powerful warning for me as well. Now if if the responses of the apostles and the Sanhedrin don't surprise us. They're doing what we would expect them to do. What happens once the apostles are thrown in jail is a bit of a shocker. Once they get to prison. Luke casually mentions the presence of a divine messenger, an angel. As if it's no big deal. Now, although angels appear six times in the book of Acts, let's not ignore the enormity of each of these appearances. In the Old Testament, an angel is an extension of the divine person. They are more than just heralds with important messages. That's kind of what we reduce them to. They're just guys with important messages from heaven. Uh, They're a bit more than that. They are the glory of Yahweh made visible and audible. They come with divine power and with supreme authority. I'm not saying they are God, but I'm saying they're invested with all the holiness and all the authority that God has to give any created being other than himself. He's not a created being, but you know what I mean. They are next in line to the supremacy of creation, to the authority, to the holiness of creation. Obviously, we are the most beloved of creation, humanity. We bear his image. But we don't have the power, we don't have the authority, we don't have the, the presence of holiness that an angel does. I, I know I certainly don't, except, and here's the paradox, Okay, here's where I'm twisting myself into corners, except that we have the Holy Spirit in us, which does make us supreme. Anyway, an angel, compared to just a regular Joe human, is more powerful. Can we just say that and move on? Okay, good, good enough. So they come with divine power and supreme authority. To them, a locked jail cell is no barrier whatsoever, right? That's nothing to them. And so, after drawing the imprisoned apostles out of their bondage, the angel gives them a fresh commission from God himself. He doesn't just free them, he also gives them something to do. That message, which, which the apostles are motivated to obey out of reverence and love, notice how they obey immediately the angel, and they refuse to obey, at any point, the Sanhedrin. But that message is to go to the temple, and the temple is the very heart of Jewish identity. That is the heart of Jewishness on earth. Uh, That is the location where disobedience will be met with the fiercest repercussions, right? At the temple. What the angel says, go to the temple and give the people all the words of life. Side note, interesting side note. The word life here is the Greek word zoe, which is where we get our daughter's name from. So anytime it comes up. I just think that's awesome. Um, So words of life, what a beautiful term for the message of Jesus' salvation. He says, go out to the temple and give all the people the words of life. I love that phrase. In other words, apostles, in other words, you are free, right? Literally free from your imprisonment. So use your freedom to save others. That is an authority worth obeying and a command worthy of immediate action. And you know what? It's exactly the same commission that we are given. You have been imprisoned and had been imprisoned. You are now free, so what are you going to do with your freedom? There's a lot of people in this world who mistake their freedom for the right to do whatever they want. I'm saved. I'm on the the list. I'm in. I'm one of the VIPs in heaven, so now I can go and do whatever I want. Live however I want. That's not how it works. And I hope you understand that. And so this, this the acts of this angel to the apostles is a microcosm of what we are called to do. Become free through the saving grace of, of God. And then use our freedom, not for selfish purposes, but for selfless purposes. To, to bring freedom to others. That's the commission that we are given. The next portion of our passage feels like an episode of the Three Stooges. <laughs> It's hilarious to me. As the Sanhedrin begins to find out what has happened to the prisoners. So as I'm reading it, you can soundtrack it with the wah-wahs and the boi oi and whatever. Because it's just hilarious. So this is uh, verses 21 to 33. So at daybreak, the apostles entered the temple as they were told and immediately began teaching. When the high priest and his officials arrived, they convened the high council, the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel. Then they were sent for the apostles to be brought from the jail for trial. But when the temple guards went to the jail, the men were gone. Wah, wah, So they returned to the council and reported, The jail was securely locked with the guards standing outside, but when we opened the gates, no one was there. When the captain of the temple guard and the leading priests heard this, they were perplexed, wondering where it all would end. Then someone arrived with startling news. Hey, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple teaching the people. The captain went with his temple guards and arrested the apostles, but without violence, for they they were afraid the people would stone them. Then they brought the apostles before the high council, where the high priest confronted them. Didn't we tell you never again to teach in this man's name? He demanded. Instead, you have filled all Jerusalem with your teaching about him, and you want to make us responsible for his death. But Peter and the apostles replied, We must obey God rather than any human authority. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead after you killed him by hanging him on a cross. A better translation, we'll talk about this, is hanging him on a tree. Then God put him in the place of honor at his right hand as prince and savior. He did this so the people of Israel would repent of their sins and be forgiven. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, who is given by God to those who obey him. When they heard this, the high council was furious and decided to kill them. Having gone to collect the rabble rousers for trial, the council instead finds a collection of empty cells. Can you imagine being the temple guard at that moment? You had one job, one job: make sure these guys don't escape. And so you come, and there's no one there. And how have they escaped? What are you? What are you going to tell me? An angel freed them, or something? Well, yes. As we'll see later in Acts 16, jailers would die for offenses similar to this. Their sacred duty was to protect, to uphold justice by keeping them in their cells. And he's clearly failed. So you can understand his panic, the the captain of the temple guard, but you can also understand how the Sanhedrin would be perplexed and unnerved as well. I love how verse 24 says, they wondered when all this would end. It's like they... When will this find all oh, this Jesus business? When's it all going to end? They are weary of it all, but it gets worse. It seems unless there was some sort of divine intervention, which there was, then there must be some sort of traitorous sympathizer of Jesus among their ranks, which there wasn't. Because otherwise, how did they all go free? They were in a locked cell. How were they free? Maybe the situation was even more severe than they had assumed. Well, considering who's pulling the strings in favor of the apostles, I would say it is more severe than they had assumed. And then something astonishing happens. The captain of the temple guard, who is a highly respected man with tremendous amounts of authority. There's the Sanhedrin, they have all the authority in the temple. Next in line for that authority is this captain guy. He's like the chief of police. And he has to humbly approach the apostles and essentially ask them to come back with him to jail. Because if they use force and go arrest them with violence, the people, they're afraid, will stone them to death. Because they love the apostles. So basically this guy, who is so humiliated, has to go to the apostles and say, "Um, I uh, hate to ask you this, but could you come back with us to prison? That would be great if you could do that. They don't use force, which is highly ironic. Because the Jewish council wants to stone the apostles. Kill them. Eliminate them. Exterminate them. But as they go to arrest them, their greatest fear is that they themselves will be stoned, executed by the people. How pathetic and impotent are their powers? Really. But you know what is equally as astonishing? Something that's easy for us to gloss over? The disciples return with their oppressors willingly. They don't put up a struggle. They don't make threats of calling down heavenly armies. They don't show any anxiety over their present predicament whatsoever. They go peacefully. They are turning cheeks. They are walking extra miles. They are doing exactly as they are representing the heart of their Lord Jesus perfectly in this situation. They go peacefully towards unjust persecution. Can any of us say that we would be behaving as they did? Will we be kicking and screaming and putting up a fight? It's important for us not to miss that portrait of faithful disciples trusting fully in the Holy Spirit. The council then has an opportunity to vent their frustrations on the apostles. Those rotten apostles continue to preach the name of that man. Notice how they can't even spit out the name of Jesus. It's so disgusting to them. You keep preaching that guy. You know who I'm talking about. That man. But there's another element behind their frustration. In verse uh, 28, the Sanhedrin accused the apostles of attempting to place the guilt for Jesus' death on their shoulders. Isn't that a curious thing to be upset about? Because, one, even though the Romans performed the execution, you know what? It was this very council, these very men, who are directly responsible for Jesus' death. They're the ones who brought Jesus to, to, to trial and even though pilate said and even though even herod said there's nothing wrong with this guy what are you, what are you doing here even though pilate said i can see no reason to have this man condemned it's this council who said no condemn him we have no king but caesar crucify him so they are directly responsible for his death and second of all isn't his death what they wanted isn't that exactly what they had been planning for 3 years yes of course Wouldn't they still consider Jesus a blaspheming false prophet who deserved death? Why are they distancing themselves from his death now? And I'm asking, why do you think it is? Why are they trying to shed the blame for Jesus' death? Why would that be? Worried about what? Right? The crowds, the people, they are getting worried. It's because once again, they are showing that their one main concern is saving face, And preserving their power amongst the people. The people are beginning to side with the apostles and with Jesus. The more highly the name of Jesus is regarded by the people, the more the Sanhedrin quails at the fact that they were the ones who stole him from the people. They aren't concerned with what God wanted them to do with Jesus. If they were, they'd be bowing down and worship. They weren't worried about what God wanted. They only care about eliminating Jesus as a threat to themselves. And now, ironically, the fact that they eliminated him as a threat presents for them a threat. He was a threat before, so they got rid of him, crucified him. But the fact that they were the ones who crucified him is now a threat. Isn't that delicious irony? Their jealous pride is coming back to haunt them. Again, it's easy to wag your fingers in shame at the the Sadducees, It's, I think, holier for us to recognize that there's a lesson for there as well. That our pride and our selfishness comes back to bite us. And so, with that, ladies and gentlemen, it's Peter time, baby. Peter time. I love Peter time. Well, actually, very clearly Luke says it's Peter and all the other apostles. Uh, Similar to the day of Pentecost, where Peter was the spokesperson, but there was a collective, united front of apostles behind him. It wasn't just Peter and the the apostles like, what are you saying here, Peter? Not at all. All of them are in on this together. It's like you can picture them standing in a line with their fists on their hips like this, just giving it with Peter that everything Peter's saying is true for all of them. And what does Peter proclaim? He proclaims the kerygma. You remember the kerygma? We talked about that for a whole sermon, a couple sermons actually. The kerygma, it's a Greek word that means message. And so the kerygma is the basic gospel message of the apostles. And it shows up pretty much every time Peter opens his mouth, which is to say, a lot. There are three elements to the kerygma. Don't expect you to remember them because I don't remember them, but there they are. The three elements of the kerygma are, one, an historical proclamation of the life, death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus. I think too often we forget about that fourth one, exaltation of Jesus. The apostles were obsessed with the fact that he went up to be at the right hand of God. and We almost never talk about it. But the Kerygma included his life, death, resurrection, exaltation. Um, And they set forth uh, that all of this happened as the fulfillment of prophecy and it involved human responsibility. So those are elements of, the first elements of the Kerygma. Second element, a theological evaluation of the person of Jesus as both Lord and Christ. And finally, third, a summons to believe and receive the forgiveness of sins. I didn't make this up. That Robert H. Mounts did. so these elements are present in Peter's powerful proclamation as he makes his case for why he and the other followers of Jesus must actively disobey the council and instead obey God. All of this is here. It's only a few verses long, but it's all there. In fact, Peter declares uh, this God who they're choosing to obey as God of our fathers in verse thirty, the God of our fathers linking Jesus to the historical scriptures that this council had supposedly devoted themselves to. They don't say the God of just our fathers is in the apostles. He's the God of our fathers, including you, Sanhedrin. And this God of our council, or God of our fathers, whom you serve, has made all of this happen. So it's a subtle little dig at the Sanhedrin. And so the first element, Jesus' life. Jesus' life is summarized by how God raised him up Which likely has less to do with his crucifixion and more to do with him taking on the identity of a mighty deliverer, a conquering Messiah. Um, Similar to how David or Daniel were said to have been raised up in their life. Jesus' death, part two, is attributed to the council. Peter says here, we must obey God rather than any human authority. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead after you killed him by hanging him on a tree. And so Jesus' death is attributed to the council, which lines up with their earlier professed fears. This is exactly what they were worried about. You keep putting it on us. Well, because it deserves to be on you. You did it, is what Peter is saying. Jesus is said to have been put to death, peculiarly by hanging on a tree. A manner of death, which Deuteronomy 21:23 declares as a curse upon the person suffering that grim fate. So they don't call it a cross here. They're very specifically calling it a tree. Both Peter and Paul, you can read this while I'm speaking. Well, maybe I'll read it for the podcast. Peter, yes, and this is the same Peter. Peter says, He himself bore all our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. That's First Peter 2.24. And Paul writes in Galatians 3.13, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. That's the verse from Deuteronomy I'm speaking of. The reason that Peter says, doesn't just say you hung him on a cross, he says you hung him on a tree, is is to really help the Sanhedrin understand the depths of their depravity. Jesus wasn't just executed. To be hung on a cross was the ultimate shame in Jesus' day, right? But his manner of execution was unjustly weighted with the heavy curse of a wicked shameful criminal to be hung on a tree was the ultimate shameful death for the jews not just the romans for the hebrew people somebody who deserved ultimate shame was hung on a tree so the fact that peter says you hung him from a tree means it, it was as much about disgrace as it was about disposal of someone unwanted it was the ultimate disgrace and they subjected jesus to it and yet we come to the next part of the kerygma Jesus' resurrection and exaltation. The cross is a filthy scandal to the Jewish people. They hate crosses, because it was often the Jewish people who ended up on them as they rose up against Rome. And so the cross was a filthy scandal. But the apostles never shy away from that crucial element of their Lord's story. They are not shy about presenting the cross. This same disgraced and dishonored and disposed of Jesus was glorified. And was revealed as a prince and a savior. Glorified at the right hand of God. And you'll remember that at his trial before this very same Sanhedrin. The words that got Jesus crucified were. You have said it. And you will see me coming on the clouds of of power. and Seated at the right hand of God. Those are the words that ultimately got the Sanhedrin crying out. Blast me and tearing their clothes. And those are the words that got Jesus crucified. Well, guess what? He's there now. It happened. He's at the right hand of God. And so Peter throws that right back in their faces. Hearing Peter proclaim verse 31 must have really been salt in the wounded prides of the Sadducees. Those are the words that led them to crucify Jesus, hang him from a tree. And now Peter's saying that that's exactly what happened. He is at the right hand of God. As the Kerygma makes clear, human responsibility plays a role in the circumstances of Jesus' lordship. No group of people was more responsible than the jealous Sanhedrin. Even if it's healthy for us to recognize our own participation. But what is the purpose of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and exaltation? That's the focus of items number two and three here in the Kerygma. Jesus' lordship and our human response are summarized briefly and expertly by Peter in verse 31 as he did all this to give to Israel repentance and forgiveness of sins. That if he is prince and savior, why did he do that? To give us forgiveness and uh, the gift of repentance. Though the powerful men listening to Peter have proven themselves antagonists to Jesus, there is hope even for them. Who better represents all of Israel than the Sanhedrin? They are the the head of Israel. And Jesus offers the gifts of repentance and forgiveness to all Israel, even her corrupt shepherds. Isn't that an amazing statement? Notice the language of that too. We all understand grace and forgiveness as gifts enabled by Jesus' death and raising up, but do we consider the ability to repent and turn back to him a gift in a similar vein? I don't. We treat repentance as an obligation, not a reward. And yet, without the gift of being able to turn back to him and foster a relationship with our Lord, we're hopeless. Without the gift of repentance, we're just as sinful and broken as we ever had been. And so part of the core message of the early church is the overwhelming gift that is repentance. And so it would be good for us to understand repentance as a gift too. Yes, it's hard. It's not like grace or forgiveness, but it is a gift. And then finally, to seal his courtroom testimony, Peter calls on his chief witness, his ace witness, that is the Holy Spirit. He says, we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, who is given by God to those who obey. Hearing all this, the Sanhedrin again flies into a murderous rage, particularly the majority Sadducees. But the council is not made up entirely of Sadducees. In fact, The most well-respected teacher on the whole council was not a Sadducee, but rather a Pharisee. The Pharisees were more widely respected by the people than the Sadducees were, and their opinions mattered greatly, especially one particular preeminent Pharisee. And this particular preeminent Pharisee has some wisdom to share with the room in regards to this pesky movement of Jesus' followers. This is our last passage we're going to read today, verses 33 to 40. Let's hear the wisdom of Gamaliel. So when they heard this, the high council was furious and decided to kill them. But one member, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, who was an expert in religious law and respected by all the people, stood up and ordered that the men be sent outside the council chamber for a while. Then he said to his colleagues, men of Israel, take care what you are planning to do to these men. Some time ago, there was this fellow theatist who pretended to be someone great. About four other, 400 others joined him, but he was killed and all his followers went their various ways. The whole movement came to nothing. After him, at the time of the census, there was Judas of Galilee. He got people to follow him, but he was killed too, and all his followers were scattered. So my advice is, leave these men alone. Let them go. If they are planning and doing these things merely on their own, it will soon be overthrown. But if it is from God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even find yourselves fighting against God. The others accepted his advice. They called on the apostles and had them flogged. Then they ordered them never again to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let him, them go. Gamaliel is a fascinating figure in the unfolding events of the book of Acts. He was the greatest teacher of his time, respected by fellow temple leaders and academics, as well as common people alike. He was the Pharisaic version of C.S. Lewis. Basically. In fact, Saul of Tarsus, who will soon play a major role in this series, was one of Gamaliel's shining students. Gamaliel's wisdom is the essence of Pharisaic philosophy. Uh, a guy named J.A. Findlay summarized his thinking in this way that basically he distills his message to this God is overall and needs no help from men for the fulfillment of his purposes. All men must do is obey and leave the issue to him. It's kind of disturbing to me how close the Pharisaic understanding of spirituality runs parallel to my own understanding of spirituality. God is overall and needs no help from men for the fulfillment of his purposes. All we need to do is obey and leave the issue to him. That's kind of how I see it too. And that troubles me because that's the Pharisaic approach. Gamaliel's advice, Gamaliel's advice seems incredibly wise to me. Don't get too worked up over the mysterious workings of our holy God. He will do whatever he wants to do. Time will tell whether or not this movement or that movement comes from the Father. That seems wise to me. This is not universally true, of course. All kinds of movements and philosophies and worldviews have cropped up over the millennia. And most of them are broken and corrupt. And many of them linger even through to today. So just because something lasts doesn't mean it's from God. Someone somewhere thought money was a good idea. Wrong. Bad idea. Should never have done it. The fact that money continues to exist doesn't necessarily mean the monetary system carries God's stamp of approval now, does it? If you've read Jesus, you'll see that he has a lot to say about the finances and about the system of gaining money and wealth. It's not very positive. But come on, people. If blind men are receiving their sight, and crippled men are dancing in the temple, and the demon-possessed are given sweet relief... And the broken people of Jerusalem are praising the name of God because of the loving compassion of these energetic pupils of Jesus. If all that is happening, well, maybe we should give it a chance. Yet you think? All of this good is happening. And it takes Gamaliel, the best teacher of his day, saying, hey, maybe this is from God. Let's wait and see. All of this good is happening, and it takes that for them to finally say, okay, we'll give it a chance. Of course, they still have them flogged and beaten but at least they heed his advice. And so after giving a couple of real-life studies, this Theodos and Judas, Gamaliel summarizes his argument perfectly in verses 38 to 39. If they are planning and doing these things merely on their own, it will soon be overthrown. But if it is from God, you will not be able to overthrow it. Now we are fortunate. We can read Gamaliel's words with the hindsight of history and recognize that they are similar to Chris Lance humming the same song that's on the radio, or a teenager accidentally predicting a massive power outage because he's angry about a video game. This is a similar circumstance. But if it's from God. We have no idea if anyone on the council observed the movement through countless waves of persecution and oppression and heard their unrelenting message of hope and reconciliation and saw their undeniable acts of miraculous grace and somehow, against all rational explanation, actually multiplied, like a mustard seed taking over a garden, We don't know if Gamaliel or anyone else tracked and witnessed all this and decided, hmm, well, I guess they were from God after all. There is no evidence that they did. The Sanhedrin continued to persecute the apostles and the church. I have no idea whether anyone on the Sanhedrin actually tracked them, as Gamaliel suggested. But what I do know is this. It brings me a tremendous amount of hope and peace Knowing that the wisdom of Gamaliel has been fulfilled in the positive in regards to Jesus and his followers. That Gamaliel's wisdom bore itself out. If it is from God, then there's nothing you can do to overthrow it. It it would be futile to try. Well, for 2,000 years, people have been trying. And it hasn't gotten anywhere. In fact, it's only increased and exploded outwards. Have you ever heard of Theodos who pretended to be great? No? Only in Acts 5, baby. It's the only time you'll ever hear his name. Have you ever heard of Judas of Galilee during the time of the census? No. I've heard the name Judas before. but Not this Judas, not this guy. He's in the scrap bin of history. We only know of him at all because he's casually referenced by Gamaliel here. But, have you ever heard of Jesus of Nazareth? Has his name outlasted the millennia? And so with another futile warning... Don't you dare speak his name again, you bad disciples! With another futile warning to cease proclaiming the powerful name of Jesus, and with a sound flogging to go with it, the disciples are re-released. Time would reveal the answer to Gamaliel's wisdom. Who deserves the apostles' obedience? Is it the prominent leaders of the day, or the God they claim is living within them? Whose authority would these Jesus followers heed? The council, or the kingdom? Who is behind the works of these uneducated common folk? Is it just a human movement doomed to fail? Or is it being fueled by the spirit of the living God himself, empowering them to do greater things than even the master whom they serve ever did when he walked and died and rose again to glory? Are they acting on their own? Or is all of this goodness and power and glory coming from God? If it is from God, then nothing can overthrow it. I believe that about following Jesus. I cling to that hope. I believe that for you and for I, that as we wrestle with being peacemakers in a broken world, don't misunderstand. We are still called to obey the authorities, right? We're still called to live at peace with those who are in authority. But that's hard. It's hard when we live under governments, whether it's left-wing or right-wing, that are not God's chosen people. There's just as much... Evil in the left as there is on the right. So I'm not pointing any fingers whatsoever. But we have to wrestle with being peacemakers in a broken world, as well as light bringers and truth tellers and kingdom servants. We have to be that. Next week we'll talk about letting the world bring its worst. Bring it on, world. Do the worst you can. That's next week. But it starts here. We are the church and we cannot be overthrown, we cannot be crushed or conquered or contained. We are the church, and the church cannot be defeated because it is from our God so I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing our God as sort of a reflection to all of this that our God is greater our God is stronger God you are higher than any other um, we the church believe that we the church represent that power and so we're going to sing about it but first let me pray God you are powerful and you are good and you are above all and You use broken people to do amazing, powerful things. Broken people like us. And so I pray that we would have the boldness of the apostles. That we would refuse to obey um, the broken promises of the world. We would refuse to obey rules and regulations that bring us away from you. And that we would continue to be strong truth-tellers for you. Uh, You, our God, are stronger. And thank you that you share that strength with us, us, that, that you are within us, empowering us. We recognize you, Holy Spirit, as the source of that power, and we give you all the thanks and praise. And we sing these words to you.